This is Brad Salas, and you're listening to Radio Free Leader. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Berkus, best-selling author, speaker, and business school professor. And each week, we're bringing you amazing interviews with outstanding thinkers and incredible doers. All of these interviews are designed to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date. Make sure you never miss an interview by joining our community. You can sign up at davidberkuscom slash podcast. Click on any of the episodes and there's signups right there or straight at davidberkus.com. You can also, if you're listening on your smartphone and you're in the United States, just text the word radio free to 33444. We'll send you some amazing resources that we can't really share in audio format on the podcast, including the Radio Free Leader Starter Kit. This is a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox. So again, to get all of that, just go to davidberkuscom slash podcast or text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. Now let's get started with this week's interview. So who are you and what do you do? What do I do? Well, I kind of I can do a deep dive or I can do the surface, but really what I do, David, is I help companies train and prepare the next generation for leadership. And this is something that uh, I mean obviously is in the front of a lot of people's minds. I, I know that every time I use the word millennial in a in an article or something like that, I get uh, a lot more hits than if I just use young person. But I, but I think it's deeper than that because as as I've explored for a while and as you've explored in in your book Liquid Leadership, uh, times they are a changing, and that means that leadership styles are changing and and all that sort of stuff. I wonder though if you could take us back to sort of how you ar- arrived at this because. I feel like everybody arrives at this this knowledge that the workplace is changing either by studying workplace trends, which is what I do, or by letting workplace trends hit you in the face, which was what I know happened to you <laughs> as a leader. Well, let's go back in time, you know, as they say. Uh, during the dot-com boom of the 90s. Well, this would be uh, the first dot-com boom for those of you not old enough to remember it. Yes, 1.0. And... Now, I'm a baby boomer. I know I look young, but I'm that cusp baby boomer. And right around the early 90s, I started a company called K2 Design with my business partner at the time, Douglas Cleek. And we had gone to college together, and we were just, this was this great adventure, the classic. We have two Mac, two CIs in a 9 by 12 room, and we're just going to do design work. Well, a year later, he comes into the office. He says, dude, we have to become an internet company. And I'm tech savvy and i turned and looked at him and i said what the heck's the internet and some of you are laughing at me and some of you're laughing with me uh but in the early 90s david i you probably remember this very few people knew what the internet was uh they thought it was uh email some thought it was just a gray background and a static page but we're sitting there and all of a sudden as soon as we put out that first postcard and we started building our first websites all of a sudden we exploded into hypergrowth 425% hypergrowth for 5 straight years and i went from just me and a business partner to 60 employees and i was losing my mind because every every couple of months i'd have five new employees and in the hall they were like who are you and i'm like well who are you and we just exploded But what I began to notice was the behavior of this next generation was driving me up a wall. Now, those of you who are listening who are dealing with generational issues today, 
Uh, these are commonplace now, but 20 years ago, we could not figure out what was going on. And I thought at first it was because everybody had an MBA or they were used to using computers uh, since college and things like this. But I started to realize we had a generational issue. And it's not really a generational issue. What it is is you have a new generation that's been trained and influenced by three major things. Oh, okay, so obviously I want to dive into what those three things are. However, I just want to put in a side note here. Uh, I actually remember the day I discovered the internet. I don't know if you remember this, but um, I was an AOL user. Well, I wasn't an AOL user. My parents had an AOL account, right? And I'm playing around in AOL. <laughs> and I clicked somewhere, and suddenly I was on this weird page that I had never seen before because it didn't look like it fit. In, and I realized there was this thing called an internet browser inside of AOL, and there was this whole other big world, right? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So there you go. So there is the, the internet. And when that happened, obviously, that was, that was sort of like my – or sort of like your thing with with skyrocketing is sort of I realize oh there's a much bigger world than the safety and comfort of of AOL but that's a total total tangent I just wanted to prove that I remember when uh, I discovered the internet um, because you so eloquently shared your story of when someone told you what it was um, yeah I, I found it on websites I probably wasn't supposed to be on but uh, yeah there we go okay so three main trends you have set up the perfect sort of three act structure and I uh, it means I have to take it so let's talk about what those are well let's go back in time I don't know about you David but uh, I grew up in America a baby boomer my father is the first generation of Hungarian immigrants born in the United States my mom is is pure you know American and guess what my dad didn't care about my feelings uh, I was supposed to just shut up sit down and listen and right around 1977 most boomers don't even know this happened but these new things came into our world called video games. Now, I played with a few of them, and if you're Gen X, you probably remember playing with them as well. But there is a moment, just like the internet, where most baby boomers remember the first time they played a video game, and it's usually in an arcade. And what started to take place is these video games. Uh, let, let me ask you a question. How do you learn in a video game? You die, and then you try again. <laughs> well, what happens is now this now these first video games in 1977 Atari and Magnavox tried to introduce us to them but in 1984 everything shifted to more robust gaming and also the Mac computer came into the household and what this did is it trained a new generation to use 21st century devices and the way you learn in an inter on the on a video game or an interactive video game or even in online gaming is this um you learn the rules intuitively. You push against, you test, you fail as much as you can so that you can figure out what the rules and the politics are, and everything is peer-to-peer. -peer. Now, if you're a baby boomer, you remember playing Monopoly. And what did you do when you played Monopoly? You had to read the box, take your time, learn the rules, and then you had to turn around, and then you could play the game. And those games always wound up with somebody getting angry, flipping the board over because they didn't buy enough of the boardwalk or something like that. So what happened is a new generation was raised with all this interactivity. And what happens in the video game world is leadership is rotational. Everybody is used according to their skill set within the parameters of the quest. And once you've stormed the castle, killed the trolls, and saved the princess, forget everything you just learned because the rules will change at the next level. 
So video games are kind of a huge component to the behavior of uh, millennials. And I hate to call them millennials, but that's a name that they've been labeled with. It's just it, This is just a box that's a clue. It's not a box to fit people into. It's a marketing clue. It has to do with sales. It has to do with buying patterns, behavior and communication patterns, things like this. And, uh, you know, like I said, don't stick people into these boxes because I have acted more like a millennial my entire life life. So I've met millennials who act like boomers and I've met boomers who act like millennials, just so we get that out of the way. The second big piece that really influenced this next generation is what was the number one box office movie in 1977, David? I have no idea. I honestly Star don't. Star Wars. I, okay. Star Wars. All right. Cool. So I knew I knew that it came out somewhere in the seventies. Uh, you know, it's kind of hard to remember it was that far back. What with like you know Rogue One yeah. just coming out, and and now of course there's a new Star Wars every year for like the next ten years. So that's pretty cool too. Well, now maybe millennials didn't see it right off the bat, but they lived in the. No, shadow we saw it. We saw it on VHS big... when we were like. There 10. you go. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And so what happened is boomers were always talking about this movie and how it changed everything. Well, I went to see Star Wars when I was 14, and it was the only movie I wanted to take my mom to see. I was excited. This is the greatest movie I've ever seen. Well, what that did is it changed our perspective of how to use technology in a ubiquitous way. Just like using a toaster or driving a car, Star Wars showed us what a, a T1 line would look like or, or how to use a pad or a robot uh, or even a Wi-Fi network. And this was being shown to us at a time when we had rotary dial phones. Now, some of you are sitting here going, come on, Brad, Star Wars being an influence. It was because our minds work in pictures. And a lot of people decided they wanted to work for NASA. They wanted to be a scientist because they wanted to make this world happen. And another group of you are going to say, that's, that's not true, Brad. It was Star Trek. Well, Star Trek was a bunch of very small highly intellectual people. I'm a Trek fan. I wish it had been Star Trek, but if you were in the industrialized nations and you were a geek, you probably were into Star Trek, but nobody else was. 50% of the scientists who went to work at NASA in the 60s and 70s say it was Star Trek that influenced them. But Star Wars, anybody could go see it. And everybody did. David, around the world, if you were in Guam or you were in Puerto Rico, you saw Star Wars. <clears throat> if you were in Japan or Australia, you saw Star Wars. It didn't matter where you were in the world. Everybody started to see Star Wars. And you can Google this. Star Wars posters from all over the world. And you'll see how each culture integrated Star Wars into their norms. And from that moment on, if you look at the top 10 blockbuster movies in the last 30 to 35 years, seven of them have either been science fiction or fantasy driven. Before that, what did we watch? Westerns and romance and mystery. We didn't watch science fiction that much. Science fiction from 1977 on is what we craved. And a new generation demanded it. Do you think some of this though is that because Star Wars is a Western? I mean, in a, in a, no. I mean, there's. I mean, there's the, uh -huh. there's the there's the larger idea of you know the hero's journey that's incorporated in Star Wars that really isn't necessarily there in Star Trek too much. It's actually kind of there in the reboots, which I think is interesting, yeah. um, but wasn't there to begin with. So it it had a more sort of universal appeal because of the Joseph Campbell effect. Do you think or? 
I think it's, you know, you, if I, I've done hundreds of podcasts. You're the first one who got this right off the bat. It's a Western in space, yes, but more importantly, it's a samurai movie in space. Yeah, I mean, okay, so Spaghetti Westerns, Akira Kurosawa, Samurai films, yeah, and yeah. then also the, the, like, the World War II fighter pilot ones, kind of all it. mashed up together, yeah. Well, from this moment on, if you look at the top movies from Terminator to Back to the Future to even the Avengers and, and Iron Man, they are science fiction driven. And it's the golden age of comics for the boomer, especially, coming to life, really being out there. But also Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter. And what's the main story in some of these? A young person or a child or a little person uses technology or magic to be able to beat and battle evil adults. I mean, of course, there being no real difference between a sophisticated technology and magic anyway. Yes. Yeah, I, I like your style. <laughs> I mean, yeah, so are, I'm are, I'm, are I'm showing my millennial roots here too. I mean, I'm literally recording this wearing a Legend of Zelda T-shirt, so there's that. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, that's hysterical. Yeah, and that's true. But uh, do you ever watch uh, the science the Science Channel? They oh. have a series on there called Prophets of Science Fiction, and one of their shows was about George Lucas and how Star Wars really changed things. And they had the noted theoretical physicist on there, Doctor and he said Star Wars initiated a paradigm shift. So from this moment on, guess what happened? Everybody expected and demanded science fiction or something that was driving with this hero's journey. And science fiction is the easiest way to tell it. Also, and I'm going to point this out to the ladies who are listening, uh, Star Wars was the beginning of the shift of women's roles in literature, cinema, and television. What happened is Princess Leah started to show us what a warrior princess was like who didn't need to be saved by the man. Before that, unless it was Kate Hepburn, usually the movies had the damsel in distress kind of attitude and the guy was supposed to come in and save her. Star Wars changed that. It created a huge shift from 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 Princess Leia on up to the Hunger Games and, and Inception and all these different movies that we see out now where the women are strong women hero types. So the, this really was the launching pad for a lot of changes. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think you're right. There is um, dramatic tra- changes from Star Wars. You could also see it in the in the way that... I mean, to, to some extent, science science fiction became cool, but also became the new way to spread sort of optimism, right? So, I mean, right, there are right. obviously your dystopian future things like Mad Max and et cetera, but those overwhelmingly are more niche compared to your Star Wars, your Star Trek reboot, mm-hmm. et cetera, uh, and films that are, I mean, the hero's journey is a triumph of hope and optimism, et cetera. Right. Um, but it was the beginning of that as well. Well, think about this for a minute. Uh, there's one more uh, part to the video game part, and that is the toys became interactive for this generation. So they didn't just sit and watch a television show. The, the, everything became interactive. So toys could talk to them, Teddy Ruxpin, Speak and Spell, and things like this. And at first, I, when I was doing the research for the book, I was like, confused but i started to realize my employees during the k2 days that were the first wave raised like this who were born around 1977 
those hundreds and hundreds of dot-com companies that were formed during the first dot-com boom, 98% of them were started by young people who were born around 1977. So that'll tell you how influential this great technological wave was because my generation was taught to resist technology. The new generation is taught to embrace technology. And it was from these two things I just said. But guess what? There's a third part to this. Are you ready? I, I am. I mean, we, we started with the, the three things. So I've been waiting for 14 minutes to hear what the... No, I'm just kidding. Yes, totally. Let's do it. Number three, and my father went nuts over this when he first heard it, child-centric parenting and child-centric curriculums in the school. And when my father heard this, my dad was a doctor of chiropractic medicine, had a bachelor's degree in chemistry, so he's a smart guy. And when he heard about ch uh, child-centric parenting, he said, you know, this is a load of crap. Uh, so, <laughs> and a lot of parents said that at the time. But what started to take place was this. The idea that a child was special and shouldn't be paddled or whipped or controlled or yelled at, but instead taught to open up their unique creative gifts so that they can find their own way, develop their own talents, and do the things they truly want to do from the heart. So conversations started to change inside the household. Parents started to look at their kids and go, hey, Billy, hey, buddy, what do you think? Should mommy and daddy get a divorce? What do you think? And, <laughs> yes. Sorry, I'm just laughing. And I'm, I mean, I'm sure that conversation actually happened. Yeah. But you did kind of you know pick what the I'm, extreme example. Well, you know, when I do that in corporate uh, meetings or keynotes, the audience goes nuts. But then they sit there and it gets nervous after a while because – they did do that. <laughs> a lot of them were encouraged to have these super adult conversations, and TV shows started to shift as well. You had Doogie Hauser, who was 16 and a surgeon, and he was having conversations with adults. 90210 was having all these conversations, and then John Hughes films came out, and they started to show uh, the outlier being more important and cooler uh, in the story than the football jock. You know, now the weirdo got attention. And those stories went deep. So what did that do, David? Uh, I'll explain it in the easiest way I can. It flattened the hierarchy inside the home. Hmm. So now you had young people who were so incredibly comfortable with talking to their parents. And then they went into the school system and they were encouraged to call their teacher by her first name. Hey, Becky, how you doing? Uh, and... <laughs> And they were taught to collaborate, and they were taught to – they were special, and there is no right or wrong way of doing things. There's a hundred ways to do everything. And all of a sudden, by the time they entered the corporate world, people were shocked when they would walk up to the CEO of the company and say, hey, I'm going to show you how to run this place because I learned it in college. <laughs> well, I mean, I, so I think there's there's a couple things there. Like that, that often – that became the butt – of very many jokes, but you just you actually outlined uh, one of the phenomenon that I sort of refer to as the real trophy kids, which is to say that like we look at the millennial generation, we think oh they were given participation trophies every day for just being a part of the team and blah blah blah. And by the way, I've never figured out what the difference between a participation trophy and a five k finishers medal is, but for some reason everyone was okay with the finishers medal, but not the trophy. Anyway, the thing that I like to point out is that it was it was never the millennials going out and buying trophies trophies for themselves, no. right? These were these, these were parents that were actually buying it. And the, the weird thing to me is that you you have a leadership in organizations that is largely boomer. 
And yet we sort of didn't see that this is the inevitable result of boomer parenting becomes sort of, you know, millennial attitudes becomes the way the workplace is going to work. Yes. And we've discovered uh, in studies that the workplace moves faster when you flatten hierarchy. But we still have a large contingency of boomers who are holding on to control because, uh, let's face it, I... If you look at me, I don't look like my father did when he was in his 50s. And when you look at most boomers who are in the C-level and upper management, everybody's looking around going, well, I don't feel old and I'm not going to retire anytime soon. I'm still going to stay here and I'm going to work my butt off. No one is really preparing the next generation for leadership uh, or secession planning. And that includes Generation X as well. Most boomers I have spoken to are tripping over the dead bodies of Generation X, ignoring them to shake hands with millennials because millennials have learned where their power structure is, and that is they are independent thinkers, and they will get up en masse, and they will leave a company overnight, and they won't tell you. And Monday morning, all of a sudden, you're missing 20 to 100 millennials, and you go, what just happened? Uh, that scenario actually played out. I'm going to keep the, the company nameless, but this uh, Fortune 500 pharmaceutical chemical company uh, invited 100 interns to come in and work for them for 90 days. And after 30 days, they all quit. And they left one email for the CEO, and it basically said, you people are evil. <laughs> and <laughs> Exactly. And this is what's happening, and what people fail to realize is, and, and I have to look closely at, the, at my boomer brethren, myself, I get this 100%. When we were disgruntled at work and we were embarrassed or we were shamed, because every boomer can say this, they had a mean boss at some time in their life, we would still sit there and complain and fill out our resume, but we would stay for five years. Hmm. And then we go, you know what, this place really is getting on my nerves. I've been here long enough. I'm going to get my resume together. And then another seven years goes by, and we're like, well, I have a mortgage, and I've got kids, and they're almost for You know, I hate this place. And then after 25 years, we're going, you know, this place wasn't that bad. We never left. The problem is the next generation, we kind of looked at them, and we said, look, Billy, follow your passion don't do what mommy and daddy did we gave our lives to this corporation and we lost everything in 2008 this is through osmosis they learned this and in the back of their mind they are never going to give their heart and soul to a company unless that company respects them and treats them with respect yeah i totally agree i I want to actually dive into something you you said um, around Gen X because I think there's there's a weird effect too. In addition to sort of these these cultural um, differences and explaining that sort of thing, there's a there's a weird effect because Gen X is just by nature smaller, right? The millennials are also yes. sort of the echo boom, right? And so right. you have this peak with boomers and then a trough and then another peak with millennials. As boomers are phasing out, there are literally not enough Gen Xers to fill the managerial and senior leadership roles that are created by the baby boom void. So you sort of have to tap the top millennials, which creates a really weird thing because now you've got these people who were uh, a little bit more individualistic. Like you said, they're not going to let companies control their hearts and souls, but also they're, uh, they have accelerated careers, the, at least the top, you know, let's say quartile, have an accelerated career because just the need for talent is pushing them to a higher level faster than Gen X saw. 
Well, you know, uh, I don't know if you saw this, but the New York Times a few years ago did an article where they said uh, the graying of America. And basically, they discovered that the average median age in the United States now is no longer 53. It's 22. There are more 22-year-olds now than there are 53-year-olds. That should scare everybody, okay? The other side of this is you're absolutely right. Generation X is a smaller portion of the population. They showed up early. They wore the suits. They obeyed the boomers. They listened to everything. They worked very hard on their career. And now they're ready for management. But guess what? A lot of Gen Xers, they've done studies on this. They're not reaching for the big salary and the responsibility of that management role or that upper management role. They simply don't want it. We've entered into a time where people don't equate hard work with getting ahead. Instead, they want the work-life balance. And I'm sure everybody has heard about this, but what's driving it is they watch their parents work themselves to death, and they don't want to do it. Both generations are kind of – I would actually have to say this. Generation X is probably the angrier of the two uh, or three of the generations. The boomers are – sitting there thinking, well, should I retire? Well, I'm not going to retire. And they're looking out there and they say, I don't see anybody who's ready for leadership. And then millennials want to move faster up that, that, uh, that ladder of success because they can. And uh, the Harvard Business Review did an article about this, why we wait so long to train our leaders. They discovered that the average person received their first leadership training when they hit about 45 years of age. Yet most people in those leadership trainings in the studies, they got their first leadership role when they were in their mid-30s. So they have 10 years of bad decision-making and no real leadership training. Well, now you have a generation, millennials, who want to get that leadership training at 26, at 28. And boomers were still looking at them through the lens, the GAF Viewmaster lens, of how we were raised to be abused, to work our way up. And we have to struggle. We have to do 95-hour work weeks and things like this just to get where we want to go. This generation is looking at us as if we're crazy because technology allows them to work less hours. It's not hours anymore, and it's not age anymore that determines your success in a company. That corner office, believe it or not, David, is a status symbol of the 20th century, the industrial age. The 21st century is what have you learned lately that you can contribute to the team? Well, and I I mean, I would say, too, to go back to that work-life balance piece, that autonomy is kind of the new badge of merit in a lot of organizations. You know, the idea that, yeah, Jeff Pfeffer has this quote that you can have power or you can have autonomy, but you can't have them both. And a good portion of the up-and-coming generation is picking (coughs) autonomy. I want to be, you know, as Cal Newport would say, I want to be so good they can't ignore you so that I can have leverage to ask for certain things that allow me to have more autonomy over my job than anything else. Yes. And they've also found out that people, when they're given that autonomy, when they're given the freedom to make their own decisions, they actually work harder than if they had a boss that was driving them and yelling at them and just trying to get productivity out of them. 
you know, a weird concept, right? So, so we've hit on a couple of um, reasons for this this change, this effect, this sort of the we, we've really yep. hit on the history of what led uh, to where we are today and why we're where we are today. But there's also a lot of changes that this incoming generation and also the increases in technology and the changing nature of work um, have led to that that you explore in in liquid leadership. That, that if I remember it, the name liquid leadership comes from this idea that like. Because of the ever-changing nature of this, there isn't just sort of one perfect four-box model that you can hire a consultant to teach you in a you know during a two-day offsite. Right, it's about adaptability. It's like Bruce Lee said: you have to become water, my friend. You have to adapt to the current landscape and what's going on. The reason most people have resisted the change is really because they don't understand people have changed. The people at the bottom are smart. So what do we do now? We've we've explored the why, the reasons why this is happening. So let's take a look at what we need to do to channel this. And I think uh, the Harvard Business Review did this amazing expose on Netflix. And I think it's probably one of the best ways of running a company in the 21st century. And the first thing they said is stop hiring B players. Start hiring fully formed adults. Well, and I think there was two, if I remember right, this was the Patty McCord article where she was talking about um, Netflix and used, you know, the, yep. one of the other things is that you used the, uh, we need to stop this analogy that we're all one big family or that we're, we're like a family. We're not, we're a pro sports team. And so we're going to be looking, well, I mean, B players are really what you get when you didn't have an optimal draft to pick an A player, but you should still be going right. for the A player. And I made that mistake in the 90s. I, I said, we're a family. We need to take care of each other. And really what I was trying to say is, we're all in this together. We need to take it up a notch. And I'm talking to A players already. So, yeah, the, the we're a family analogy is not a great one. And, and by the way, I've tried every management style there possibly is. And I've failed. There's only one that works. <laughs> and that's, you know, respect and firm. Hmm. You know, try to gain respect and be firm. Uh, if you want to work with me, it's going to be a fun ride. It's going to be intense. But I expect everybody to come up to my standard, and I'm going to push you past my standard. I want you to get better. And I think that's what the leaders uh, need to be more of in this day and age. Because in that Netflix article, they basically said the managers are in charge of creating their teams. So it can be a dog-eat-dog world in those teams. But guess what? The team chooses you as well. So it's a two-way conversation that hierarchy junkies are having a tough time dealing with because that power base has now shifted to the bottom because we're moving so fast. Technology is out there in the open, and you have a team that's discovering new technology every day. They're on the front lines. They need to make a decision faster in real time. They can't wait for the guy in the C-suite to give them an answer through that pipeline. Uh, I think it was John Chambers, the former CEO of Cisco, who said it best. He goes, of all my decisions, the, the reason they failed is I didn't move fast enough. So we are now in the age of speed, and speed requires every organization to get flatter and have those team members on the front lines interacting with their managers uh, better. You know, in a better way. Well, and, and part of I mean, it takes the respect. It also takes the firm. And I, I think, too, you know, it, it takes, um, for, for lack of a better word, this is a dirty word in some circles, but it takes a replacing hierarchy with uh, meritocracy, right? So yeah. I'm thinking about your video game analogy, right? 
telling someone, well, you've just got to pay your dues before you can have that next opportunity is like saying, well, you just have to play the game for a certain number of hours. And, you know, in a, in a world where like, you know, my, my game of choice growing up was Super Mario Brothers three, well, like the world record for beating that is like four minutes at this point. So, you know, it's not a question of how long you play it. It's, did you acquire the skill that let you level up? Then you should be allowed to level up. Right. Well, uh, the, the former cloud architect over at Dell, Rob Hirschfeld, and I, we got together and we were writing some white papers for Dell and everything. He's the CEO of Racken right now. And uh, we came up with this analogy. If uh, a millennial is the best at digging ditches and the older guy on the line has been there for 40 years and he's slowing down as he gets older, the millennial believes they should be in charge of digging those ditches. Uh, it's just simply if my skill set is better than yours and I'm a, an elite, which is a gaming term, elite, uh, the noob has to get out of the way, which is the newbie, uh, and let me do my job and manage everybody else doing their job. And that can be confusing to a boomer who's basing their entire career on age. I've been here 40 years. I know everything. The millennials coming up from the bottom and saying, look, I'm the fastest at doing this. You're slowing the company down. Get out of the way. Let me run this. And, it, and in many ways, they're right. I hate to say it. But, the, you know, a lot of times you may be the boomer who's bottlenecking everything and not know it. Now, okay, so I got to be fair. There are all, all to all the people currently screaming at their smartphone and listening to this. <laughs> th- there are definitely ways in which there also happen to be wrong. The thing that I yeah, think exactly. is is damaging is, you know, there are a couple instances of the ways that they're wrong, and then those get turned into sort of, um, you know, urban myths, right? <laughs> and those get yeah. circulated around as if every person under 35 is uh, calling their mom to decide whether or not they need to accept a job offer or is walking up to the CEO in the first week. Like, I think there's a very small proportion of those happening. What you don't have, what you don't hear people talking about so often is that silent majority of people who actually do know like this one isolated space in which they yeah. are right and because they're not in the right leg of the hierarchy or because they're not high enough on the hierarchy and, and getting high as a, on there as a function of age, they're in this mode of frustration because they can't actually contribute as much as they can contribute. Right. Uh, yeah, and I don't want anybody to really like pull off the road so angry as they're listening to this because I put out something that I think is uh, just enough to shock you to maybe make you go, oh, how, how dare you? The reality is, uh, and you've just touched on this, not everybody's like this. Not everybody is going to be in this these boxes and these categories, but it's going to take a very dynamic leader to be able to not only communicate extremely well, but to see what still works really well in the business cycle, let go of what no longer is viable, and listen to a younger person or take them seriously enough so that they can get the very best out of them while at the same time not discrediting their enthusiasm, their ambition, the need that they want to prove themselves. And that means you have to really know what you're doing as far as the listening part and seeing how it fits into the dynamics of your company. You said two key phrases there that I'm convinced are the recipe for survival in leading the future of work, which is listening and then letting go. Or I would use the phrase eliminating, right? Listening to your people and figuring out what is blocking them, what is causing frustrations, and, and what are they seeing that you can't see? 
And then eliminating those barriers, whatever they are, either barriers to your ability to see what they see or barriers to their doing their best work, which as you said, you know, a lot of times that can take the, the play that can take effect in the, in a sort of flattening, but other times it's not even that it's just a providing a little bit more self-managed teams, even though if we keep the levels of the hierarchy or whatever it is, but there's usually some thing to eliminate that is causing that frustration. If you can figure out what that is, which requires listening, you can make pretty dramatic gains in a short period of time. It's like using yes. a warp whistle in Super Mario Brothers 3. Right. Well, this is why I get really frustrated with companies who cut back on their training during these kind of bumpy times when they should be increasing their training. Uh, if you look this up online, it's Valve Software, V-A-L-V-E Software. They let you download their employee handbook. And uh, I'm paraphrasing, but the opening phrase is basically an adventure in showing and training people what to do when no one's around telling them what to do. So you have a generation, I mean, take a look at how we, if you're a boomer and you're listening, remember how we were managed when the boss was there, what did you do? You got to look busy, look busy, you know, so we started to look busy because we were afraid of our boss. So we only obeyed the rules and showed up early just to show that we were doing our work. And what did you do with the knowledge that you had gained? You hoarded it. And when the boss was around or the, somebody from the C-suite, then you would show how awesome you were at something. So we were knowledge hoarders. We also learned to look busy when it was time, you know, whenever management was around. So when management walked away, what did we do? Oh, we'd relax now. Well, this is kind of a parent-child paradigm. It really is, because now the boss or the parent has to be there in order to make sure that the work gets done on time. Well, now we're entering into a new phase where you have a new generation. Gen X is a little bit this way as well. They've been taught to work, and when they're done with their work, they're done. So they don't even know how to look busy. That's why they sit at their desk and sometimes you're sitting there going, why, why, did, why aren't they doing more work? They simply may not even know to do that, but you may be still fitting tasks into time management buckets, which is like, you know, from nine to five, I want you to work on this amount of work. Well, they're not trained like that. They'll work for two hours, then they'll take a break for 15 minutes. Then they'll work for another two hours. Then they'll take a 20-minute break. Uh, I know executive vice presidents who are millennials in the oil and gas industry, and they have their employees, if you finish your work in two hours, go to the beach. But you, you damn well better not miss that deadline. And that's how they operate. So you have a younger worker who wants to work faster, wants to work more efficiently, and doesn't understand why you want them to just sit there for three hours until the clock hits a certain stroke. Okay, so th they're just kind of they've been raised so differently. They may have things missing from their vocabulary and from their psyche. They don't even know it exists that they should be obedient to you or they should fear you or they should get their work in super early or they should put in extra hours. They don't know any of that. And maybe they don't need to know that. You know, I, I think that's actually a really, really good sort of first start to give people, right? So if you're looking for how do you cope with all of these changes, and we've talked about a lot of different stuff that's kind of like drinking from yeah. a fire hose and what's going to change. But <laughs> but truthfully, I mean, I would say this is a plea as a millennial. What's funny is you're right at the like the edge of the, the ex-boomer generation. I'm, yeah. right at, I'm right at that other edge. But anyway, yeah. um, you know, what, what I would say to uh, people is begin to 
separate out presence from productivity, right? In your mind, just begin to separate out presence from productivity. And that it just doing that, I think, opens up a myriad of ways uh, that the world has changed. So that's that's gonna be my encouragement for people. So here's where to start, right? Is just do that. Now, Brad. I mean, it's an awesome book, Liquid Leadership. There is a TEDx talk that is fascinating too that I'll, uh, I'll link to in the show notes for this episode. Um, I wonder though, I want to switch from some of these ideas to you. We have five questions we ask all guests at the very end. Are you ready for them? Yes, I am. What's the best advice you've ever received? <laughs> the best advice I've ever received was from my father and he was an entrepreneur. And he looked me in the eye and he said you know what, kid, two-thirds of your waking life are going to be spent working. So you better figure out what the heck you like to do and, and figure that out because you're going to be doing that for the rest of your life. And uh, by the way, I cleaned that up for you. Yeah, uh, I mean, but- it's surprising. You sound like you had a baby boomer father, actually. Yeah. My dad was actually from the – he was born in 1931. So he was a traditionalist, but he was very open to a lot of different things. And here I am. I'm an artist. I play drums. I'm a smart kid, but I don't apply myself in the areas he applied himself in, which was math and chemistry. I was, you know, I'm going to be in drumline. I'm going to be an artist. I'm going to be a creative director in New York City, those kind of things. He had no clue what to do with me. (laughs) So, yeah, he didn't. So his attitude was, well, you better figure out what you like to do. Uh, and I realized not many of my friends were raised that way. They really weren't. Uh, and so it's, it's just very funny to realize that that little kernel of advice he gave me has brought me to be this guy who's quoted in Forbes magazine <laughs> every year. And, you know, I'm giving talks at big companies. And I, I'm kind of like, wow, I, I can't believe this is happening. But it starts with that conversation with my father that echoes through time. What's an ideal day look like for you? Ideal work Ooh. day, I should say. Hmm. Idea. Well, it's so different every day. Sometimes I'm flying, and I love uh, doing the research part of doing the research part of a keynote or doing a training or a workshop for a company. I that's the nerd in me. I really like to do the deep research and then get on these conference calls with the C-level and start talking with them. So but, uh, that's the exciting part and the nerd part in me that I love doing. Uh, but I also love when uh, there's a training in the middle of the day and there's that epiphany that happens. Uh, but honestly, David, uh, every day is different uh, it, over here at uh, Shea Brad- Bradley. <laughs> it's just some days it's I'm fielding phone calls for sales. Some days it's let's work on the marketing. What What's the next project? What's the next book? Uh, are we going to turn this into a product or a CD that can serve my clients better? Uh, am I traveling? You know, it's it's so different. It's so dynamic. And it's uh, I just try to keep it fun. That's really what it is. Hmm. What are you reading right now? I am reading a book that was recommended by my business coach. And believe it or not, I do have a millennial as a business coach. Um, she said, you need to get The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks. This book is phenomenal because what um, Gay does is uh, he d- he's a, um, uh, a psychologist and, and a coach and things like this. And what happened is uh, they discovered that these top achievers like the Wozniaks of the world, although they were worth billions, there was this one little thing inside of them that was gnawing at them. They had made all the money. They had done all these things. But there was this gnawing fear in the back of something they really wanted to do. 
like take that leap and start giving back to the world in a bigger, deeper level. And what uh, Hendrix does is really pushes that envelope of go explore the, that area. And that's where they make this big leap into an area of genius. Instead of just being great, they become genius. And so um, I'm reading this, and it's just a fascinating read. Yeah, yeah, I'm on the edge of my seat sometimes because it's like, wow. Because it, it really resonates with uh, what I've done in my life and what I've gone through and, and, and the feelings I have uh, towards success. Mm. Besides almost everything we've talked about with millennials, what do you believe that most people don't? What do I believe about millennials that people? No, besides don't, besides general. millennials, we've spent we've probably spent thirty seven minutes talking about what you and I believe about millennials that most people don't. But what else? What do you believe that most people don't? I believe that we are in the greatest singular global shift that's almost a revolution where people are demanding to get back a sense of humanity in the work they do, the life they live, and the things they do. Uh, Alvin Toffler called this the third wave, where we would move into a more humane uh, time in, a, in our world, and it would be bumpy as this uh, time period would explode and be destroyed. And I believe that millennials are the generation that's leading that charge because just basically and simply, I look around at all generations, all people are demanding something different. They're almost desperate if you talk to people. And there's an awakening taking place, David, not just spiritually, but uh, internally. People want to be able to do things that they weren't able to do before. They're demanding it of their lives. They want to go back to school and become an artist instead of a lawyer. They want to contribute to life. They want to work in a soup kitchen. They want to write that book. And I see that from all generations right now. Uh, and it's a little mind-blowing, and it's exciting to see. Hmm, that's cool. That's great. So final question. The title of the show is Radio Free Leader. In your view, what makes someone a leader? Hmm, that's a good question. Uh, that's well, why we it's the a, last one. We, we, we do know what a bad leader is. We can make a <laughs> list of those. Let's put it that way. But I think leadership is an individual thing we all have our own style but for me personally it is setting the standard for people to follow but at the same time being aware and open-hearted enough that you can see the talent in a person that they don't know they have and able to elevate them so that they can be their very best and in some cases even better than you. Uh, the old saying is a, a true leader helps others become leaders and I truly believe that. Hmm. That's, a, that's, that's pretty solid. I, I also like the, I would totally accept the answer of a, a leader is anyone who's not on the list of bad leaders. Um. <laughs> <laughs> That's so the, the book, again, is Liquid Leadership. The TEDx talk is also phenomenal. We'll have links to both in the show notes for this episode, davidberkus.com slash podcast. Brad, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. 